0: Workers are bearing the deadly brunt of the devastating tornadoes that ripped across Kentucky and other parts of the United States. We'll also discuss new revelations about U.S. war crimes in Syria, a military cover-up on the January 6th attack, an extradition ruling against heroic journalist Julian Assange, the courageous hunger strike of women in ice detention in Louisiana, and more.
1: We need a new system. We need a new society
0: to today's episode of in the news our tuesday show on the socialist program with brian becker it's december 14th 2021 this is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now today and this week we look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate owned media video episodes of the real story are available on breakthrough news wednesdays at 7 p.m eastern at youtube.com slash breakthrough news If you enjoy our show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing and sign up for our December patrons only seminar with Brian, which will be held next Wednesday, December 22nd at 7 p.m. Eastern. We'll take questions for him beforehand and live as we go. I'm Nicole Roussel here with Esther Ivarim, Walter Smolarik and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ivarim is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at patreon.com slash on the ground show. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Brian, let's start with these tornadoes. I mean, there was a huge death toll in Kentucky from tornadoes that were going across six states.
1: Right. I mean, we have a lot to talk about today. We're going to start with the, the natural disaster, which in fact reveals the class nature of society like when we look at so-called natural events or acts of nature or acts of god however one might want to present them like extreme weather events they reveal so much we only need to think about hurricane katrina in louisiana in new orleans in 2005 to to know that that's the case all of the class and racist characteristic features of capitalist society are revealed in the boldest light, in fact, during a natural disaster. So we want to start with that. We also have, of course, to cover the extradition of Julian Assange. I mean, this is the most important free speech case in the country right now. Certainly, the United States wants to send a media publisher who's a foreign national to prison for decades, perhaps for life because he revealed, truthfully, U.S. conduct in Iraq, Afghanistan, and elsewhere. He revealed war crimes. The war criminals are not in prison. Julian Assange has been in what the U.N. called arbitrary detention, the Ecuadorian embassy, until he was taken out of there, and he's been in Belmarsh prison for three years. Now facing the rest of his life in prison, we want to talk about that. The so-called summit for democracy, which is nothing of the kind. It was just a way for the United States to pull its allies, the bribed and coerced, we might call it, a summit of the bribed and coerced together to face against the majority of the people of the world who are excluded from that summit. We have a lot to talk about, but what happened in Kentucky, what happened with the tornadoes, what happened with this next extreme weather event is so dramatic and it really reveals that there is in midst of everything, including climate catastrophe, a nonstop war against the working class. And anyway, Nicole, you've been following. Let's just talk about this.
0: Yeah, there's a a really great piece in The Wall Street Journal that interviews some really important workers in Kentucky. It's called Tornado Left Deadly Path of Destruction Up to 250 Miles Long in Kentucky. And I'm going to read from that article This is about, just to give some context from what I'm about to read, this is from a candle factory in Mayfield, Kentucky, where 110 workers were working Friday night on a Friday night shift. Eight have already been confirmed dead, and eight were still missing as of Monday. So here's from the article, quote, "'Miss Parsons Perez was trapped beneath a water fountain with an air conditioning unit on top of that. When she called 911, she said the dispatcher told her that they were trying to get to the people in the factory, but it would be difficult.' So she began to broadcast on Facebook Live, quote, I wanted more people to know that we were in there trapped, she said. We needed to get more than just Mayfield Police and Fire Department out there, unquote. When rescue workers pulled her out after three hours in the rubble, she asked them what time it was. They said it was 12.03 a.m. on Saturday, quote, then wish me happy birthday, she told them. She turned 40 on Saturday. On Sunday, Ms. Parsons-Perez said in an interview she was sore but uninjured. A single mother of four, she needed a new car. Hers had been parked outside the factory and was carried away by the storm. She also needed a new source of income, she said. Quote, they're not going to say you ain't gotta pay rent, she said, unquote. And this is exactly what you were talking about, Brian. I mean, who's working a Friday night shift in a factory? Who's working at all the night of their 40th birthday? Who has four kids at home and survives being crushed by a water fountain, and air conditioning unit and a factory in a building? And then when interviewed the very next day is most worried about finding a new job. I mean, that just shows the desperation.
1: And her bosses, I mean, they knew why were those workers still at work? Why were they still at work?
0: Exactly. Why were they still at work? And even when the governor, Andy Bashir was speaking about the incident on Saturday, he actually, at that time, they thought only 40 workers had been accounted for. And it wasn't until the company sort of corrected them like a day later being like, no, 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 no. We definitely accounted for all these workers, but it took days for them to actually, and this wasn't because people were trapped. This was because the company seemingly had taken their time or had not, made public, at least the fact that, you know, that they had reached out to and even just to make sure people got home. I mean, this is disgusting.
2: Right. And then the inability for the police or whoever was in charge there to marshal the forces necessary to really see about the people she's like broadcasting on Facebook Live to try to get help. So, I mean, this is the same thing we talked about in terms of Wuhan at the beginnings of the the pandemic and how China was able to, because it's centrally planned, there are centrally managed resources that they can pull people and like get people to come to an area where there's an emergency. How come, you know, we don't have that type of ability to
0: do that? That's ridiculous. She had to go on Facebook to get help. I know I was thinking the same thing. And, you know, it remind me of of so many people who when they're pulled over, especially young black people, when they're pulled over by police who might go on Facebook Live or who might start recording, you know, because the state isn't there or it's out to get them. Right. One or the other. But either way, you know, this woman is is faced with being crushed by, you know, these incredibly heavy pieces of equipment and her. You know, she calls. What you're the nine one one. That's what you're supposed to do. And they're like, "Well, it's going to be tough." It's I like mean, what
2: people say: "We keep us safe." When when the chant in the streets is, "We keep us safe," because the police weren't there to keep her safe or to even, you know, render any immediate aid.
1: The bosses know that there's extreme weather coming through an area, and you tell people just keep working because, of course, all they care about is profit, and they only answer to their superiors about profit. So. They don't want to let the workers go because maybe the tornado won't hit the factory or the warehouse. Maybe it'll miss. And then if the supervisor had let them go, the supervisor will pay a price. So the supervisor will always err on the side of doing what the big bosses really demand, which is to keep the workers in line to maximize profit.
0: Because he's scared of losing his job. The supervisor doesn't want to lose his job either.
3: And the only reason why they feel comfortable, confident making horrific decisions like that is because of the total impunity they enjoy under the U.S. justice system. I mean, the people who are responsible for keeping that workplace open should be charged with some kind of crime, I think, right? I mean, isn't that criminal negligence that you would knowingly put people in a position where they are likely to get seriously injured or killed just so that you can make a few extra dollars that day in profit? I mean, that... Is an absolutely horrific crime in my mind, but under the U.S. legal system, under the U.S. justice system, I mean, even though I, th- I think you probably could make a technical case for why that is illegal under the U.S. code, they feel confident that no prosecutor will touch them because the rich and their corporations are, in fact, in large part untouchable under the capitalist legal system.
0: And the same thing happened, and not quite the same, but you know, very similar thing happened in Illinois. At least six people were confirmed dead at an Amazon warehouse. And Jeff Bezos tweeted his fullest gratitude to all the incredible first responders and said that everyone in the town should know that Amazon is committed to supporting them. So that really makes up for it for sure.
2: Well, I don't know if it's in that article, but it's on social media that the people who work in that factory are posting that they called and said, can I not come in because there's a tornado warning? And that they were told no. So I don't know. You know, things have maybe not filtered into a news report, and then not everything on posting on social media has been verified. But you have people who work at Amazon that they say they say they work at Amazon, saying that they called in and asked not to have to work.
1: As of Monday afternoon, 64 confirmed dead, many many missing. That number is going to go. That number is going to go up again. When something like this happens, you know the problem for the woman who doesn't have a car now, that's her problem. It's not the company's problem. It's not the company that forced her to come there where they took a direct hit. It's not their problem. When it comes to private profit, it belongs to them. The workers come to work, they produce more value than the bosses give them in the form of wages. That's the products that the bosses sell. The bosses keep the difference. That's the surplus value. That's what profit is. The value created by the labor of workers. And then whenever there's a social problem or growing, accumulating social problems because of, say, climate catastrophe and extreme weather events, there's no requirement by the same capitalist corporations to do anything about it. They accrue all the profit, but all of the risk or all of the damage or the mitigation of damage accrues to us, to society. It's our problem. It's the working class's problem.
0: Not to mention the eight people who lost their actual lives. The bosses weren't there in the path of this storm. They weren't in danger. They were able to be wherever they wanted to be to, to hide, to hide out. But eight people lost their lives. I mean, that's the ultimate risk. That's the ultimate you know, thing to shoulder.
1: The reason the US is going down as an empire isn't because of China. It's because of this failure of US governance because the capitalist system sucks at protecting people because the capitalist system won't do things for the working class. It won't invest in healthcare. It won't invest really in, you know, major, you know, new technologies to upgrade the infrastructure of the country. Everything, even the infrastructure bill is basically just a subsidy for corporations in the so-called public-private partnership. Anyway, the US capitalist government doesn't need to blame China for its decline. It need only to blame itself, but of course that would be dangerous. Workers would start to say, yeah, we don't wanna live under a system that fails so miserably. So as part of the politics of mass diversion, they're diverting people's attention to an enemy that's not really an enemy, that would be China. There's another part to this story, which is that the U.S. Congress, while it could not pass a social spending bill, it did pass $768 billion for so-called defense, which is not defense, it's for the military. And when you look at the Department of Energy, the Department of Homeland Security, the real number is not $768 billion, it's about a trillion dollars, but the $768 billion is even more than what the pentagon requested and even more what the, than the biden administration so here's the same congress giving all of this money for death and destruction so the u.s has yeah it can't help the poor it can't you know prevent workers who are losing everything from losing everything but it can provide great missiles the best bombs the latest in nuclear bomb technology and with this money nicole the money is used for war crimes Endless war crimes always dressed up as trying to help people or, in the case of Syria, liberate the country from ISIS. Anyway, let's talk about the new news coming from The New York Times revelations about Syria.
0: I was, I got to say, incredibly angry when I saw that Congress had passed the defense bill. I mean, yes, of course, they pass it, you know, with full support of both parties every single year. Let's not
1: call it the defense bill anymore.
0: I mean, of co- you know, it's not surprising, but I still was just at this moment, this could be what the progressives used as leverage. This could be it. But that's not what happened. So but I do want to talk about in a really important story that in a follow up story, really, in The New York Times over the weekend, it's called As a Secret Unit Pounded ISIS, Civilian Deaths Mounted. I'm going to read. The first few lines here, quote, A single top secret American strike cell launched tens of thousands of bombs and missiles against the Islamic State in Syria. But in the process of hammering a vicious enemy, the shadowy force sidestepped safeguards and repeatedly killed civilians, according to multiple current and former military and intelligence officials. The unit was called Talon Anvil, and it worked in three shifts around the clock between 2014 and 2019 Pinpointing targets for the United States formidable air power to hit convoys, car bombs, command centers and squads of enemy fighters. I mean, this article really goes on to detail the depravity of this unit. And, you know, it's not just this one unit. Obviously, if there's this top secret strike cell that's, you know, operating this way, just killing civilians, you know, willy nilly this can't just be like, there's got to be accountability. There's got to be review. And there is. And the article goes on to to make that clear. I'm going to read from it again about really how far up that this went. Quote, as bad strikes mounted, the four military officials said Talon Anvil's partners sounded the alarm. Pilots over Syria at times refused to drop bombs because Talon Anvil, the secret strike cell, wanted to hit questionable targets in densely populated areas senior CIA officials complained to special operations leaders about the disturbing pattern of strikes. Air Force teams doing intelligence work argued with Talon Anvil over a secure phone known as a red line. And even within Talon Anvil, which later in the article you find out is only about 20 people, some members at times refused to participate in strikes targeting people who did not seem to be in the fight. The four officials... And these are the four officials who spoke to the New York Times and talked about what happened. The four officials worked in different parts of the war effort, but all interacted directly with Talon Anvil on hundreds of strikes and soon grew concerned with its way of operating. They reported what they were seeing to immediate supervisors and the command overseeing the air war, but say they were ignored, unquote. So again, I mean, this is completely unconscionable. This is essentially the military going rogue, being able to just do whatever it is that they please and shoot at whoever they decide to shoot at and kill civilians all over Syria. According to Larry Lewis, a former Pentagon and State Department advisor who was one of the authors of a 2018 Defense Department report on civilian harm. He said, quote, every year that the strike cell operated, the civilian casualty rate in Syria increased significantly. And he said the rate was 10 times that of similar operations that he tracked in Afghanistan, Afghanistan, where we know there were two hundred and forty thousand people killed. I mean, you know, so we know even though we don't have counts necessarily right now, you know, the civilian casualty rates are so much higher because of what's going on here that we're talking about and went unacknowledged. General Stephen Townsend, who commanded the offensive against the Islamic State in 2016 and 2017, and now heads the military's Africa Command. So clearly the military was fine with how he performed, you know, really denied that they hadn't taken civilian casualties seriously, saying, quote, there's nothing further from the truth. And, you know, he essentially said, Well, I ordered these monthly civilian casualty reports to be made public for both Iraq and Syria. And so, you know, any civilian casualties are from, quote, the misfortunes of war, unquote. But when we talk about these civilian casualty reports, they don't include, you know, the report we talked about a month ago, looking at, you know, this huge civilian casualty operation, none of those numbers were included in the civilian casualty reports. So the only civilian casualties they're including publicly are, you know, these small numbers that they've decided are okay to publicize and to clear. But there's all of these really shadowy secret operations that are going on behind the scenes where, again, you know, things like this strike cell, Talon Anvil, are operating pretty much on their own and are, you know, shooting at people where they don't have much, if any, evidence of whether they're involved, whether they're fighters, who they are, whether they're civilians or not, and are just shooting without any accountability and killing people.
1: And just just what if The New York Times had not done this story, or what what would have happened if the family that got wiped out by the drone attack in Kabul, what if that hadn't happened just days after U.S. Marines had been blown up at the airport in Kabul by a suicide bomber, and at the moment the U.S. was leaving Afghanistan, we just wouldn't know anything about this. We would know
0: nothing. We would know
1: nothing about this. The two hundred and forty thousand people who died in Afghanistan were overwhelmingly. Civilians, but we didn't know about it. We didn't have to think about it. You know, as George W. Bush told the American people after September 11th, "Just keep shopping. You know, leave it to us. We'll take care of this. You know, don't get too involved in politics, because they wanted a they wanted a carte blanche. They wanted a free hand to do these kind of massacres. And so, you know, the U.S. arrogates to itself." The right to kill whoever it decides to kill around the world. That's what the drone attack kill list is. And it's not just Republicans. Obama went over, you know, Tuesday meetings for the the kill list meeting to decide who would live and who would die. You know, the drones can't tell the difference between a family coming out to greet their dad who's coming home from grocery shopping in Kabul And armed terrorists—they don't know. So a drone operator somewhere else, watching a blurry video, decides, "Yeah, we're going to kill these people." And the American people are told, "Just keep shopping. Don't think about it." And again, we would know nothing about it. But this is the reality in Yemen, in Somalia.
2: This is the reality. Even in Ethiopia now, I was going to say we don't want to give the New York Times too much credit, because at the same time they are not letting people know that we are supporting terrorists in ethiopia that are rampaging through the country murdering raping dispossessing people and you know this story comes out like after we've like totally ruined syria but in the meantime like in the current in the moment we're not hearing anything about like what we're doing in ethiopia where we've pivoted to since afghanistan and
0: yeah and to build too on on what y'all are saying the blurry drone videos that there are, you know, quote unquote, analysts back in DC or in some office analyzing in the United States, that's best case scenario. This strike cell that this article is talking about, and I really do recommend people read this article, you know, they're not even, they're intentionally turning the cameras away from the target. So there's no proof later on that they were civilians. I mean, that. so it's best case scenario, you know, for the U.S. military when they're you know, using these drones and we can't really tell and we don't really know what's happening. Maybe it's a farmer with a rake or maybe it's a, you know, a fighter with a rifle. It's pretty hard to tell on these things. You know, that's best case scenario for what they're doing. And in fact, Talon Anvil played, according to The New York Times, an outsized role in the 112,000 bombs and missiles that were launched against the Islamic State by the United States.
1: Oh, my God. 112,000 strikes.
3: Yeah, I mean, whenever the U.S. military gets caught committing a war crime, there's sort of a familiar script that they go to, right? It's that, one, well, sometimes in war, civilian casualties are inevitable, right? You know, the brutality of war, this is just the nature of war. And if there were mistakes made, if there were crimes committed, then it was done by people way down on the chain of command, way, way down on the chain of command. And the top generals just had nothing to do with it. But that's nonsense. That's nonsense. I think both in terms of the the commanding generals of the operation against ISIS as Nicole's been explaining, but also I think we should extend that to Donald Trump himself. I mean, people in the armed forces know how to read between the lines and the tone, the tenor for the war, the basic practices of the war are set by the commander in chief. And he made it very, very clear that civilian casualties were not an issue. So here's a quote from Donald Trump in 2017. It was a speech at CIA headquarters right after he took office. Trump said, we've been fighting these wars for longer than any wars we've ever fought. We have not used the real abilities that we have. We've been restrained. We have to get rid of ISIS, have to get rid of ISIS. We have no choice. Radical Islamic terrorism. And I said it yesterday, it has to be eradicated just off the face of the earth. I mean— Anybody in the military knows exactly what Donald Trump is telling you to do. Anybody in the CIA knows exactly what Donald Trump is telling you to do. But because it's Trump, it's actually not even necessary for them to read between the lines because Trump was an open advocate of war crimes. I mean, here's something that he said in 2015 when he was still running for office, hadn't assumed office yet. The other thing with the terrorists is you have to take out their families. When you get these terrorists, you have to take out their families. They care about their lives. Don't kid yourselves. When they say that they don't care about their lives, you have to take out their families. Totally clear from the very summit of the chain of command, civilian casualties were okay in this war.
1: Not only okay, they were encouraged. Trump, as commander-in-chief, while this was taking place, said, Kill their families. And that, in fact, is what the Pentagon was doing.
0: And then in the meantime, the military was actually concerned that they weren't doing enough strikes, that they weren't launching enough bombs, enough missiles, you know, killing enough people. And so, you know, the high level commanders started to lower the decision making power on when to press go, on when to fire. So there were low ranking. I'm quoting the New York Times, relatively low ranking U.S. Army Delta Force commandos in this cell who were pulling the trigger, who were making the decisions. I mean, if you start seeing counts of the dead, I would have to assume that there are people looking at these counts above this unit, above this cell, above all of these cells, above this level. If you start seeing that, wouldn't you make a change if it's something you didn't want? Like, wouldn't you say, well, wait, You know, we wanted to do this, not with all of these civilians dead. Like, we're clearly going to revoke your clearance to make these kills. And yet that's not what happened because it was five years.
1: There is a logic to war crimes in a criminal war. There's a logic to war crimes in a criminal war. Here's the logic. The U.S. government knows that American casualties create a political liability on the home front. Right. Like if a lot of Americans are getting killed, like happened in Vietnam, then there will be like this big anti-war movement. But if you can find a way to wage war where the Americans aren't dying and all of the bleeding and all of the suffering is taking place somewhere else. And especially if it's concealed from public view, you know, but you know for sure there aren't going to be coffins coming back to Dover wrapped in American flags with those dramatic photographs of weeping families over their lost loved ones, their lost children. If you can avoid that kind of imagery, then it's not a political problem to kill Syrians. It's not a political problem to kill Somalis or Yemenis or Syrians. You can kill as many as you want. Or Ethiopians
0: so, or Eritreans. So
1: the, whole, the whole Pentagon strategy following the Vietnam syndrome where Americans became a factor in U.S. war planning was to detach the American public from the crimes of their criminal war. And then there's one other part of the logic of war crimes in a criminal war. If the war is against the whole people, if it's against all of the Syrians who are in Northeast Syria, for instance, then you can justify killing civilians, children, and their moms. Because who knows, maybe those moms or maybe some of those children could in fact be enlisted as part of the armed forces of the people who are targeted in an anti-people war. Like that's the whole concept of people's war. So if someone watches the original winter soldier of Vietnam veterans testifying about their own war crimes and the guys who have like really pronounced profound PTSD, it's because they shot children. That's a lot of it. There was a lot of that. And there was a kid riding on a bike and he was riding towards a group of GIs And he was 10 years old and he was getting closer and closer. And they didn't know if, like, concealed on his bike could be a bomb. So they shoot him dead. They shoot the 10 year old dead. Then that's okay because he's not an American. He's a Vietnamese kid. And it's okay, it's not a political liability. But then the people who shoot the 10 year old, you know, they have to live with themselves. And that's part of what happens with PTSD. So the other element with this kind of high-tech massacres, you know, another part of the logic of war crimes in a criminal war, is that if you can detach the soldiers and put them like miles away, and we're all away from the people they're killing, and all they have to do is call in airstrikes, then there's kind of an antiseptic feeling about it. There's a sort of a sterility. There's sort of a detachment that allows people to do it. And I think the Pentagon has thought this through To the letter, because they realize that when GIs or the civilian American population becomes anti-war, it becomes a major political liability and a major political factor. So there is a logic to what they're doing. It's kind of comprehensive, but I think it's important for us to understand these are not just collateral deaths. These are not the, you know, what happens in war. This is the nature of the U.S. war.
2: And remember that despite the fact that these attacks were so horrific, that it was really the Syrian government in collaboration with Iran and other people that really allowed the Syrian people to really survive. There were no big American attacks on the terrorists that were attacking the Syrian government. You know, there was not... These attacks are almost after the fact. And if it was not for the Syrian government keeping the Syrian people safe, then they would not have prevailed. Syria would not have prevailed. I just wanted to say that because despite the fact that this is so horrific and so widespread, what did it really do? What did it really accomplish?
1: You're right, Esther, because the Syrian government is saying to the Americans, get out of Syria, leave. It's an illegal occupation to begin with. And actually the Syrian government, which certainly wouldn't, you know, the U.S. always says the Syrian government is such a, it's killing its own people, right? Like the U.S. says, we don't want the Syrian government to kill its own people. We want to kill your people. And again, it's a completely illegal occupation. But I want to go on to another subject if we can. I don't know. It's not unrelated because Julian Assange did tell the truth about the Iraq war. He showed the U.S. was carrying out you know massacres against civilians and against journalists. That's what the Iraq war logs were when those two attack helicopter pilots ask for permission to shoot down all of those Iraqi civilians and a Reuters photographer, and they they get the permission and they shoot and kill everybody, 18 dead, and then the pilots are laughing and they're like they're having fun. They're actually having fun. And Reuters, who you know the photographer worked for Reuters. They tried to get the video of it and the Pentagon said no. Well, Chelsea Manning gave it to WikiLeaks and WikiLeaks published it. It's true. It's not false. It's not false news. It's the real story. And when WikiLeaks did that, they didn't do it alone. They partnered with the New York Times, they partnered with their Spiegel, the Guardian, they partnered with mainstream media. And now, after. You know, seven years or eight years incarcerated in the Ecuadorian embassy. After three years in Belmarsh, the flunky, stooge British ruling class using the high courts uh, has said yes to the U.S. government appeal to be able to bring him to the United States and to put him in prison for the rest of his life. Because he published documents that the other mainstream press also published. Now, nothing WikiLeaks has done, nothing that they've published has been untrue. Nobody's saying it's untrue. So what the government is basically saying to investigative journalists is if you publish documents that we want to conceal, but are in fact true documents, they're truthful, and you do that and you defy us, we're going to put you in prison for the rest of your life. Now, does that have a chilling impact for investigative journalists? Well, let's think about it like this. If the New York Times, a New York Times investigative journalist, and there are it happens over and over, wants to get documents from a source, government documents from a whistleblower, say, like Chelsea Manning. The US government's not going to do to them what they did to Julian Assange, right? But the editor of the New York Times will say to that reporter, "Hey, Remember what happened to Julian Assange. So, this will be the chilling impact of the Assange prosecution against all people who pretend to be or are investigative journalists. And that's so important for a country that prides itself on the First Amendment. You know, Congress shall pass no law that inhibits a free press.
2: You know, and as Biden was at his democracy summit, pledging all these funds for you know, independent journalism around the world. Very ironic.
1: The New York Times, you know, the Nobel Peace Prize was given to two journalists who were defying authoritarian governments and producing news. One was Russian and one was Filipino. So here's the, the New York Times from December 11th, top of the page, accepting Nobel Prize, two journalists warn of perils to democracy. And then there's a picture of the two journalists, a Filipino woman and a Russian. And right below it on the New York Times, it says, another headline, UK court rules Assange WikiLeaks founder can be extradited. Like, where's the irony? Like, who laid this page out? (laughs) Walter, I mean, it's the same damn page of the New York Times, exalting press freedom On the top and on the second half, yeah, and WikiLeaks that produced and published truthful documents in accordance with or in partnership with mainstream capitalist media is now to be extradited as if we don't understand the irony, the extreme irony of this. It's unbelievable.
3: It's unbelievable. I mean, it shows that WikiLeaks and the New York Times are actually not in the same business because WikiLeaks is actually a journalistic organization. I mean, the New York Times exists to essentially repackage the talking points from the Pentagon, from the CIA, from the State Department, and regurgitate it to the people of the United States in a format that's supposed to be considered unbiased, neutral, fact-based, evidence-based. But none of that is true. If that were true, then... The invasion of Iraq, for instance, I mean, the New York Times wouldn't have fully participated in propagating the lie that Iraq has weapons of mass destruction and therefore should be invaded, a crime which resulted in the deaths of over a million people. I mean, that was the New York Times. They were totally part of that operation. But WikiLeaks stands on the complete opposite side of that, because unlike the New York Times, they're not just a propaganda outlet. They're not just a mouthpiece for the U.S. government. I mean, every once in a while, the New York Times does release real investigations, right?
1: Nicole, this is like your story about war crimes in Syria. The New York Times broke that story. It was their investigation. So you would think, hey, the New York Times is, you know, sort of not just on the government payroll. They do do some revealing news, which in a way makes them a more dangerous enemy because while they tell some stories about some crimes, about some bad conduct by U.S. imperialism, when push comes to shove, they're always on the same team, but they're in that way, they have more credibility. If it was a state-owned media, people would say, oh, well, that's a state-owned media. But it's this kind of what Chomsky called the manufacturing of consent, which is more easily done when the press has at least the appearance of the free press.
0: Well, it gets back to what Esther was saying. It's a lot safer. And I'm not saying that this wasn't an important story. The the story we talked about, about Syria is incredibly important. It is, you know, less of a revealing thing to talk about since it is happened in the past. If this was something that was happening right now, you know, that the New York times is putting out that might start a movement that might you know, empower a movement that might give a movement fire under their bellies to really go out and push against U.S. imperialism. But that's not what they're writing about. Not to mention, of course, that, you know, on the other hand, I'm sure that that cover that you read about, Brian, with Julian Assange, like the people who read The New York Times, I would imagine a lot of them are liberals who like the Democratic Party. Julian Assange has long been, you know, they have long not been in his fan base because, you know, he released what was true about the DNC. He released real information about the fact, you know, that the Democratic Party was rigging the elections against Bernie Sanders and was like clearly out to get Bernie Sanders and to keep him from being, you know, to having any sort of powerful world within the party. So, you know, for New York Times readers, they know that their readers aren't going to exactly come and support Julian Assange based on that. So it's easier for them to do that.
1: I want to turn to another story. Irma Diaz. Was a hotel worker. She was arrested while working in Arizona. This was right after Trump called for the big crackdown on undocumented workers. So she'd been in the country for 15 years, working at a hotel. ICE showed up at the hotel. She had an improper ID. She was arrested. First, it was the police who arrested her, then ICE. She was, I think, deported and tried to re enter the country. She has three children. She's lived here for 15 years. She tried to re-enter the country. She was arrested. She was sent, Esther, to one of these private prisons in Louisiana, far away from home, far away from where her kids are. And she and a bunch of other women have been so terribly treated, so brutalized in so many ways, that they tried to do something to call attention. They're in remote northern parts of Louisiana. And they went on a hunger strike, a bunch of them did, and the government wants them to say yes, that they're agreeing to being deported, even though they're, most of them are asylum seekers, or in Irma's case, she was an undocumented worker who tried to re-enter the country. But they're making life such hell that they're hoping that Irma Diaz and the others will sign deportation papers. Now, she has extreme diabetes, and they're not giving her insulin. She's been in the jail for three months, and now under pressure, under this pressure, under torture. Torture is defined as the powerful, imposing, unnecessary pain on the powerless. And this is torture. You're torturing these Spanish-speaking women. And Gloria Lariva and another group of folks from the Party for Socialism and Liberation and perhaps some other organizations, went to Louisiana to try to get press coverage for them, to draw attention to their hunger strike, You know, we found out about this from an independent journalist, but Gloria being the activist she is, she immediately started working. Anyway, Esther, you had a chance to talk to her.
2: Yeah, I spoke to Gloria and this is my interview with her. And and I'll say that in addition to the just horrific conditions and things that you're mentioning, that we should also remember that when Biden was first elected, he signed a a flurry of executive orders, and one of them was that the federal government would sign no new contracts for private prisons. And even at the time, people were saying, well, you know, this may just be symbolic because, first of all, there are existing contracts with private prisons. But in addition, the states have a lot to do with who they sign contracts with. So this is my interview with Gloria, and I'll say that The idea of someone in Arizona being sent to Louisiana is something that people here in DC can relate to because when we have people who are federal prisoners here, they're sent far away from DC. People who are local
0: prisoners here are sent far away. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Far away. And this prevents them from having any kind of contact with their family and gets them caught up in this whole situation where they have to pay so much money to visit or to have a telephone contact even. And so this is what Gloria is talking about in terms of the case there. On Monday, rallies and press conferences were held outside two privately run prisons in Louisiana to sound the alarm about the abuse of asylum seekers and migrants housed in these facilities and to highlight the cases of hunger strikers who are protesting and conditions, as well as the failure of the United States and Louisiana in particular to process and fairly consider asylum claims. To discuss this breaking news, we're joined by veteran human rights activist and former presidential candidate for the Party for Socialism and Liberation, Gloria Lariva, who was among the organizers of the press conference. Welcome back to the show, Gloria. Thank you so much, Esther. Well, first give us the big picture. Women have been on a hunger strike and There are a lot of issues around food and proper care at the Richwood Correction Center run by GEO near Monroe, Louisiana. And there's another facility under scrutiny, the LaSalle Detention Facility in Gina, Louisiana. So tell us about what those who are housed at the prisons are saying about what is happening to them.
4: Yes, with the record deportation orders arrests of people who are immigrant without papers in the U.S., as well as those who have sought asylum, many tens of thousands at the border. They are apprehended. We know of the children who've been placed in these horrible jails for a number of years. But now, in Louisiana in particular, it is the state with the second largest number of refugees seeking asylum and of migrants, undocumented workers who've lived in the U.S. for a time and who've been arrested and facing deportation. The reason it is such a large number of people in Louisiana is that starting in 2012, Governor Edwards had ordered a reform of the prison system to reduce the number of people in prison. So from 2012 until almost 2020, the numbers went down from 40,000 state prisoners to 27,000. And to fill that gap were two vulture corporations, GEO, the largest corporate prison corporation in the world, and LaSalle Detention, which is based in Louisiana. Both of them have signed you know, very profitable contracts with ICE, with the U.S. Immigration Detention. And that's why upwards of 11 prisons in the state, which used to be state, are now ICE jailed. And we received notice a few days ago of women who went on hunger strike on December 2nd because of just horrifying conditions. The problem with knowing what's going on inside exactly is that the women and the men, of whom there are thousands in the state, are not allowed to receive visits, according to ICE, because of COVID. I think it's an excuse and a pretext because other prisons are allowing visits. But therefore, we haven't been able to reach them until Sunday night. And Sunday night, received the call from a father, Colombian father whose daughter has been in there for three months inside the jail. And he's really terrified for his daughter because she's developed these terrible sores on her body from being there they're not being given medical attention she's 20 years old and has been waiting for months to actually be deported to Colombia and even though she's desperate and is can't take it anymore and wants to be now she was seeking asylum but now she said I might as well go home because it's so horrifying here they're holding on to people And it sounds like what the prisons are doing is holding on to people longer than they should be, no resolution, so that they can make more money from ICE right? because ICE pays more than the state prison. The other woman I spoke to on Sunday night is in her 40s. She's Mexican, and she's lived in the U.S. for 15 years. So she's an undocumented woman who with a life, she has a 26-year-old, 20-year-old, 17-year-old children who are DACA. They're DACA recipients, and yet she was caught up in jail. Immigration activists from Arizona had been in contact with her until I spoke with her, and they were urging her, don't sign the sheet that says you want to be deported. Because what the ICE officials are telling them is, if you sign and go home, you can apply for asylum or for a visa from Mexico. But that's not true. What happens is you never get to come back in. But they're enticing them. And yet this woman, her name is Irma. She's you know allowed people to quote her. She has diabetes type 1. She's not getting insulin. She's not eating because she's the one who led the hunger strike because they're not given fruits or vegetables and the diet is pure carbs. She can't have that having diabetes and she's mm-hmm. in great danger. she said that with this one 17 year old girl set has a heart condition is very ill. She's been there seven months. She's from Honduras and has been awaiting deportation, but again, stuck for seven months because she so- lost her case.
2: She's already lost her case, but they're still holding her there.
4: Yes, they're holding them inordinately. There are Salvadoran, Chinese, Haitian, Guatemalan, Ecuadorian, Colombian, Mexican, and Brazilian. There are women there who've been there for seven months from Brazil. Now, there were no Africans of the questions that I asked of her, but that's because they're probably segregated by either continent or, you know, different. Considerations. I know last year I heard that there were 40 Cameroonians in the jail near Lafayette, Louisiana.
2: Wow. So, in addition to the poor food available, the really criminal lack of processing of asylum claims, you have people not receiving any type of medical care that they should receive. Now, what agency, is it Homeland Security on the federal level, would be responsible for overseeing these prisons? Because even though they're privately run, they have a contract, you know, paid by our tax dollars and they have to meet certain requirements, I think, and have some oversight by the government. The Department of Homeland Security, DHS, is the overall agency,
4: department, that oversees these jails. And right. under that is the USCIS, that is the ICE, you know, the Immigration and Border Control. And they're the ones who administer the jails. But as you said, of course, they're private prisons that contract to ICE. And therefore, GEO, G-E-O, in capital letters, the largest Prison corporation in the world, based in the US, has many of these contracts throughout the country. And then there's LaSalle that's Louisiana based. So, this is an interesting fact though about Louisiana and the judges who decide whether someone gets deported or is granted a hearing after they get an interview because they get an interview and they're told you'll get a decision soon, but they're waiting again for months. And that is That from 2013 to 2018, the percentage of asylum appeals that were granted in Louisiana was only 10 to 16% of those who filed. While in the US nationally, the average is 42% of people who appeal to get asylum a a vast difference. And there there was one Louisiana judge who, from the same period of time, actually 2011 to 2018, never granted one asylum request, denied them a hundred percent. So this is political.
2: Right. I think that, you know, I was actually surprised to learn that uh, there could be such a disparity from state to state. It just really shows the inconsistency of the process. In other words, why should Louisiana be such a stark case in terms of not granting asylum. You know what I mean? It means that there's no consistent process for giving everyone a fair hearing.
4: Well, it may very well have to do with the reduction in prison population and that these jails, which were run by Gio and LaSalle when they were state prisons, that they have the incentive to keep them because a lot of times in prison, people have years that they're in prison. And so these are could be potentially shorter cases, but they're extended. Now, the right. question, which we haven't had answered yet to our question, is who's really behind the extension of this time? And it seems to me it's probably those jails. Because this is we're talking about Louisiana versus the rest of the country average of asylum granting. Right. And this is Louisiana. It's the south. What happens when Governor Edwards says, we've got to reduce the prison population, this is, you know, not right. And then the void is filled because of the profit motive.
2: Right, exactly. We know in this country, you know, we, we know about the 13th Amendment and how slavery was made illegal or outlawed. There was an exception for that, and that was if you were imprisoned. And if you were in prison, you could still have the status of a slave. And and we know under mass incarceration now, those same bodies that were worth so much as an enslaved laborer became valuable again as an incarcerated person that could be basically profited from, right, inside these private facilities, so, I mean, I I have no doubt that you're right. And what, in terms of the protests and in terms of drawing attention to this really egregious situation, who can we target nationally in Louisiana to bring about some change there?
4: Yes. First of all, the rallies and press conferences that we held on Monday were about beginning a campaign. It's not a mm-hmm. one-day action it's a way first of all to have gone to the jails to let them know inside that we're with them we're for them and we're not going to abandon them the woman i spoke with sunday night was they have received no hope they've appealed to their parents who have no power They've appealed to a couple of immigrant rights people, in wonderful people in Arizona, Semillas Arizona as a group. But no one's been here on the ground. There have been lawyers who have filed for their cases, but it's a lawyer process. And of course, they feel for the women and the men. But there's not been a movement, and that's what this is intended. We shouted to them that we were there. I told Irma on the phone, I said, Tell everyone not to despair, that they will not be abandoned, and that this is a struggle. Then, what is needed is a number of things to do Freedom of Information Act requests, demands. How many are there in the jails? Who are they? What country? What is their diet? What's their budgeted diet? What medical care are they getting? Why are so and so and so and so not getting the treatment that they need? Just as examples all kinds of information that we need to have, which has to be given to different agencies, to Department of Homeland Security, ICE, the jail itself. And the other is that you said something very interesting about the 13th Amendment. The 13th Amendment says that convicted people, those are who are convicted, can be treated like slaves, unfortunately. But there is a case that happened within the last three years in the United States. And I have to look that up because I have it in my files. It was very important to me that county jail inmates who were not convicted because they were awaiting trial. right? convicted. Right. They were ordered to be paid back pay for all the labor they had done in jail at minimum wage of where they are. That's huge. That's the first time that a county jail has been, Challenged on this and lost because they were illegally holding them as you know slaves. So working them, right? Yes, and so we asked what we know and what we've been told is that many of the women do the toilet cleaning, do the cleaning of the rooms. They are working, and there was something that I saw that said that they were they were agreeing to this free labor, but that you can't make a free decision when you're in jail. Exactly. And so that's another avenue that we want to take. Okay.
2: All right. So folks who are listening, is there any type of petition that they can sign on to? How can they connect with this beginning campaign?
4: Well, we have just begun and there are a number of groups, immigration rights. They're pretty far away. Monroe, Louisiana, which is where the Richwood jail is. It's, exactly halfway between Shreveport and Jackson, Mississippi, which is way up north in Louisiana, very remote. And it's about four and a half hours north of New Orleans. So a lot of people couldn't make it. We did this quickly. We didn't want to wait time because they said we're desperate. And so we did this quickly as a start. And we're going to begin a petition, all kinds of things in the campaign. So people can contact the Answer Coalition, answercoalition.org, or they can contact pslweb.org. The contact is there for people to let us know. We will be issuing a petition very soon Another help that people can do.
2: Okay. Okay. Well, I've been speaking to Gloria Lariva, a veteran human rights activist and former presidential candidate for the Party for Socialism and Liberation. Thank you for joining me today, Gloria.
4: Thank you, Esther. Thank you for the invitation and for letting people know about this case.
1: So we're going to keep following that story, Gloria and the other folks from the PSL. And again, there may have been other organizations too, were staging protests at different places in Louisiana yesterday. But this is the story of so many workers who are in jail because they're workers. They're in jail because the bosses are glad to have them to exploit them. They pay them low wages, but they have no rights. You know, the old labor slogan, an injury to one is an injury to all. Well, I want to couple that with another old labor slogan, which is the worker struggle has no borders. And for all these folks who are being deported because they came from Mexico or northern Mexico, they can easily make the argument that they didn't cross the border, that the border crossed them. Because, you know, the United States took half of Mexico in a war of aggression so that the U.S. slave states could expand into what then became Texas. Anyway, we have to stand with the undocumented.
0: And before we move from the story to another really important element, at least in my mind, is that there's local reporting in Louisiana really showing that the fairly sizable prison reform efforts that the state went through which were mostly guised under, we need to save money. We can't be housing you know, 40,000 people in this small state. We don't have enough money to do that. The state was able to reduce their prison population down to 27,000, which was great, which was huge, which wasn't enough, but was huge. And those are some of the reasons that the local reporting has outlined that you know these prisons are deciding to move on and get contracts with ICE, because not only do they have empty beds, they can make more money with ICE than they can housing local prisoners. So that's not an argument against fighting for reforms. It's a clarifying thing that when, you know, this system is not set up for us, when it's set up for profit, these things will continue to happen. We have to keep fighting.
1: Because the United States has elections every two years or four years doesn't mean it's not a police state. You know, it has a democratic form and underneath the democratic form, there is a police state. People who are immigrants know it. Of course, people who are in the black community, generally speaking, know it all too well. The working class, the poor know it. You know, 2.3 million people in prisons in America, one out of every four prisoners in the world is in this country, a country with 5% of the world's population. That's a police state. And yet Walter, Joe Biden convened the uh, summit of the democracies. Isn't it perfect really? You know, the U.S. Constitution was passed in 1787. Chattel slavery was allowed until 1865. So that's another, what, 78 years where, yes, the U.S. had elections. Some people could vote. And yet it had a system of slavery. So is that a democracy? Well, a particular kind of democracy. It's called capitalist democracy. Anyway, Walter, the sham summit.
3: Oh, I mean, it was just completely ridiculed all around the world. Such an exercise in utter hypocrisy. The United States convened the Summit for Democracy. Essentially, it's an attempt, a branding attempt by the Biden administration to show that under his administration, the United States is pursuing universal principles about human rights, democracy. In other words, that they're aiming to dominate the globe, but for altruistic reasons. And that's the goal of U.S. foreign policy to promote the spread of democracy. It's absolute nonsense. I mean, one indication of that is who was invited to the Summit for Democracy. Israel was invited to the Summit for Democracy. Israel is an apartheid regime. I mean, it rules over the Palestinian population, the indigenous Palestinian population with an iron fist, an explicitly racial system of government, of military rule, military occupation, where rights are explicitly denied to people on the basis of their nationality, on the basis of their Palestinian nationality, universally condemned for their apartheid system. But they're invited to the Summit for Democracy. The Colombian government, led by the extreme right-winger Ivan Duque, he was invited to the Summit for Democracy, even though in Colombia hundreds of social movement leaders, trade union leaders, indigenous peoples movement leaders, farmworker leaders are assassinated every year by far-right death squads connected with the Colombian government. I mean, is that democracy? Bolsonaro's Brazil was also invited to the summit for democracy. I mean, it's complete nonsense. It's complete nonsense. And the United States, even though they didn't invite, say, Saudi Arabia or the UAE or Jordan to the summit for democracy, they still have very, very close relations with these governments that are among the most absurdly dictatorial and repressive on the face of the planet. I mean, in in Saudi Arabia, you can still be sentenced to crucifixion for a crime. It's an exercise in absolute hypocrisy. And lots of other countries around the world were pointing that out. I mean, Venezuela had an important alternative summit to promote peace and solidarity around the world. Cuba also had an anti-imperialist summit. China organized their own summit for democracy. So it's not being met without Resistance on the world stage, or without any other government speaking out for their legitimate rights to independence.
2: So, Walter, we saw a few news reports that Juan Guaido, that the Biden administration is recognizing as the head of Venezuela, right, was invited to the summit. And then I'm seeing A couple of news reports about him actually addressing the democracy summit. So saying that we are facing one of the most terrible dictatorships in history, talking about the democratically elected government of Venezuela, I assume. (laughs) And so anyway, that just adds more hypocrisy, ridiculousness, surrealness, whatever you want to call it, to this so-called sham of a summit. And everybody around the world can see it. It's almost like the climate summit. And we said it was like the emperor's new clothes, the the story that we tell children about the, the emperor doesn't know that he's naked, but everybody else can see he is. So
0: you can't mean Juan Guaido, the Juan Guaido who, at the time that Trump, Biden's adversary, Donald Trump, decided that Juan Guaido was going to be president, that only 2%. Was-
1: no, 14%. It wasn't 2% of the Venezuelans who knew of him, 14% of an entire. <laughs> all the way 14% of Venezuelans had heard of Juan Guaido of at him. the time that he announced that he was indeed the president. You
0: can't, you can't mean that Juan Guaido as third. Yeah.
2: I mean, the uh, same Juan Guaido, uh, the same Juan Guaido who, who basically advocated for the U S to militarily attack his own country. So yeah, we're talking about the
0: same person. Okay. Well, I don't think he should be at a summit for democracy.
2: And, and here, And
3: here's another element of that. I mean, think about the state of, quote-unquote democracy inside of the United States. I mean, in the United States, there's no democracy. I mean, the the ultra-rich control politics. They control politicians through campaign donations, through lobbying, through the media, through their ownership of private media outlets. I mean, the political scene in the U.S. is dominated by a tiny handful of extremely wealthy oligarchs. I mean, what's democratic about that? There are many, many states across the country that are passing racist voter disenfranchisement laws Uh, targeting black voters so it's a complete
1: farce all right by the way everybody breaking news as we're recording our show pentagon won't punish any troops over errant drone strike in kabul that killed 10 civilians so lloyd Austin, secretary of defense has said it was a tragic mistake nobody will be held accountable no criminal proceedings against anybody again it's okay because they were afghans Like, you know, even when the United States does have trials, like for the the rapist and murderers of all of those women and girls in Haditha in Iraq, you know, 22 dead in that war crime. You know, they they got off anyway. Complete impunity. Let's go on.
2: I'm sorry. But also time has just selected Elon Musk as person of the year.
0: So we can't we can't forget that. Oh, my God.
1: Elon Musk. Well, that's perfect. He's uh, person of the year. Person of the Year.
0: Person Person of the Year.
1: By the way, I think it was in 1939 that time named Hitler Person of the Year. So (laughs) I don't know. Let's go on to another story. Walter, a January 6th story, something pretty important, actually.
3: Yeah, so I think this is a really important break in the case. So Politico reported that... Colonel Earl Matthews, who was essentially the top lawyer, the top legal official for the D.C. National Guard, has written a memo, a 36-page memo, where he details a cover-up, a cover-up at the highest levels of the U.S. Armed Forces to conceal the role that top Army generals played in delaying, critically delaying, the deployment of the D.C. National Guard to secure the Capitol and repel the attackers on January 6th. So Colonel Earl Matthews says that Lieutenant General Walter Piat, who is the director of Army staff, and General Charles Flynn, who is the brother of General Mike Flynn, known far-right conspiracy theorist Trump ally Michael Flynn. Organizer, not just theorist. That's right, who played a critical role in all of this. He said that those two men orchestrated a cover-up. And there are two specific things that I think are really shocking that Colonel Matthews details. One is about a phone call that took place at 2.30 p.m., shortly after the rioters breached the Capitol building and began rampaging through the chambers. So, At 2.30 p.m., there was a call between the chief of the Capitol Police, D.C. National Guard officials, and Charles Flynn, General Piatt, and several other high-ranking national security officials. And this is the call where the Army officials said, we don't like the optics of National Guard troops deployed to the Capitol building. We don't think that that'll look good. And so just stand by. Stand by. Let's just see how this plays out. As the rioters were rampaging through the building, looking for Vice President Pence, top senators. They said, just stand by. To
1: hang, hang Mike Pence. And then the military says he's the vice president of the United States. Hang Mike Pence. And the military says, let's see how it plays out.
0: will not look good.
1: <laughs> the optics will be bad. Maybe the optics of Pence being hung. I don't know. Anyway, Walter, go ahead.
3: So Flynn and Piat- deny this, right? They've put out this official report that's never been made public before, but it's an official internal army report whitewashing this whole thing, denying that they said such a thing. And that's, Matthews says that Piat and Flynn were absolute and unmitigated liars for claiming this. Another fabrication that Matthews alleges relates to a supposed 4.30 p.m. conversation between Ryan McCarthy and top security officials. So according to the Army cover-up version of events, McCarthy, around 4 p.m., developed a plan to secure the Capitol building, and it was relayed to the commander of the D.C. National Guard about half an hour later at 4.35 p.m., So this is supposed to portray them as, on top of it, proactive, they're putting together a plan, and also implying that the D.C. National Guard had no plan of their own. But what Matthews is saying is that such a phone call never took place, that this 4.35 p.m. call is a complete invention, and there was no such proactive steps taken by Army officials to secure the Capitol. And they're saying that the D.C. National Guard was ready to go fully equipped this entire time for hours. So I think this is something that's very, very important because while the Department of Justice has arrested, pressed charges against hundreds of individual participants, the sort of frontline participants in the storming of the Capitol building, uh, what's really, really significant to me is how did the high levels of the police and military hierarchy facilitate their attack? And that's what Revelations like Matthews really gets to the heart of.
1: Yeah, and Donald Trump was, while this attack was taking place, and while he's watching it on TV, he's making calls to the Republicans saying, change your vote. He's taking advantage of the storming of the Capitol to put additional pressure saying, see, now you can do it. Now you can do it. Now, you know, it's the military. It's Donald Trump. Why hasn't Donald Trump been pressed for charges? I mean, you have all of these individuals, some of whom were very random, the ones who are being arrested, some of them are just there. Some of them had no you know, big plan to even storm the Capitol. They're being arrested and they're sort of being scapegoated. Not that we're sympathetic to them, but in a way, what the government is doing is, is focusing on them and saying, look at all the people we're arresting. Meanwhile, the architects of the plan are not being held to account. And why is Donald Trump able to go around and make and raise millions and millions and millions of dollars? And obviously, he was the man. He was the guy who was organizing this, and he wanted to keep the presidency in spite of the fact that he lost, and in spite of the fact that it was validated that he was lost, because he believed that his enemies in the Democratic establishment, in the DA's office in New York, in other you know locales we're going to make his life hell by pressing criminal charges against him for financial crimes and other, you know, criminal conduct for many many years. He didn't want to lose his immunity, which is what comes with the presidency. So he was like looking at what was happening, he was taking ready to take extreme measures. His base was loyal and even now like the majority of Republican voters for Trump believe that The attack on January 6th was correct because it was a stolen election. Why do they think it was a stolen election? Because Donald Trump told them he's their leader. And again, absolute impunity for the leaders of this thing. We're going to, of course, look for more information. We know that the House of Representatives Investigating Committee has subpoenaed Trump's diaries from January 6th. Trump is sued, saying that executive privilege gives him the the right not to turn them over. But Joe Biden is, in fact, the executive. He's the chief executive. He's the president. He says, yes, let the records come forward. The appeals court just ruled against Trump. But this will undoubtedly go to the Supreme Court, three of whose nine members were appointed by Donald Trump. And some of the others are just as right wing or even more right wing. So we'll see what happens. Anyway, real quick, time is running short. Let's go to another story. The U.S. announced a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Games, Walter, sort of a a neither here nor there, betwixt and between kind of position. It's not like the U.S. boycotting the the Moscow Games in 1980 over the Soviet intervention in Afghanistan. At that time, U.S. athletes were barred from participating But now it's just like American politicians aren't going and China says, good, we didn't invite you anyway.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's certainly true. It is a little ridiculous. I mean, it's clearly just a stunt, but it does show how... I mean, the United States is really pursuing a full spectrum offensive against China. I mean, the core of it is military, right? It's the military buildup in East Asia, the massive expansion of military spending in the United States, including spending on nuclear weapons. But it has all of these diplomatic and political elements to it as well. And I think that the diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Olympics, even though for sure, it's not a full boycott. It's kind of silly. You know, it's being blown up by the media. It still shows that they are committed, the U.S. government is committed to a strong ideological component to its struggle against China, to its battle to contain China and prevent it from emerging or consolidating its position as a real alternative pole in world politics to the United States. So they're saying that this is because of human rights violations in Xinjiang, targeting Uyghurs, again, this absurdity where the U.S. government appoints itself the defenders of the rights of Muslims around the world. They're talking about the Hong Kong separatists. You know, all of these different pressure points, fault lines in Chinese politics that really are about the territorial integrity, the sovereignty, of China as a nation, which is so central to the entire project of the Chinese government to reunify China and assert its independence. So, this is very calculated, both in terms of what they're doing and how they're presenting the diplomatic boycott. And it is really something that presages what's to come in possibly much more intense ways.
1: I want to turn to another story. One of the elements of the U.S system of governance is what's called federalism the 50 states are sovereign except in some areas like when it comes to declaring war or regulating interstate commerce raising a national army these are the sovereign rights of the federal government but the 50 states have sovereignty over all these other kinds of things so here you have a situation esther where if you're a pregnant woman in New York state and you have an unwanted pregnancy and you've decided to terminate the pregnancy with an abortion, you can do that. You can do that in the first trimester, second trimester. You can get an abortion. There's lots of places where you can get Safely. A, safely. You can get an abortion throughout the state at many different facilities. In Texas, the same country, but because of this federalist system, the state of Texas says you can only have an abortion if you have gone through and jumped through many hoops, but you have to do all of that within six weeks, long before many women know that they're pregnant. So the Supreme Court, top court, in spite of Roe v. Wade, which said that abortion rights are national, has said that the Texas state efforts to basically prohibit abortions for most women in most circumstances, that their law their illegal anti-woman law can stand but now they're going to allow other legal challenges to take place but allowing it to stand as is until those other legal challenges play themselves out in the court
2: right well yeah yeah you pretty much said it all yeah we spent a lot of time last week talking about the dobbs versus jackson women's health organization where the court by any Measure In terms of people observing their arguments, it looks like they're going to uphold that case. And then on Friday, they ruled in this Texas case that they're basically letting it stand, but allowing, as you said, people to abortion providers to challenge it. But they're only allowing limited challenges to the law. In the meantime, the law still stands. And in addition to having this very small window, six weeks for a woman to get an abortion, You know, this is the case that enables the basically kind of these bounty hunters to like hunt down women who are seeking an abortion or anyone helping them to secure an abortion. And they can get like ten thousand dollars as a reward. So this is all horrible. And we're talking about things that are surreal earlier. But as a result of this, the California is saying that they're going to use the same type of strategy to go after gun laws and these high capacity weapons, these war weapons to basically challenge their right to have these kinds of weapons on the street in California. So this is just prolonging the misery of women in Texas and prolonging the implementation of this law because it will be months, if not years, before any kind of court case can be heard and provide relief for women there.
0: And in the meantime, I just want to point out the incredible classist and racist nature of this law because in this tiny, tiny window, this six week window, where again, most women don't know they've become pregnant. You have to be able to go through all those hoops, like Brian said, which means missing work, which means raising all the money that it would take to actually get this care. So and not to mention that if you're somebody who doesn't always have access to sufficient nutrition or who's stressed out physically a lot, you might have spotty periods all the time. You might miss your periods constantly. They might not be regular. So right. this is so clearly you know, targeted really specifically toward the people who can't fly out of state, toward the women who are going to the limited number of clinics in Texas and having to deal with all that.
2: And remember, just like in Mississippi, this Texas law has no exception for rape or incest.
1: This is a war against women. It's a full-scale war, and of course, as we've been saying, it would be foolhardy to rely on any court to defend the rights of women. The majority of people, and certainly the majority of women, absolutely support the right of abortion, the right of women to control their own bodies. And we must find a way to have a massive mobilization. The Democrats, as we said last time, the Democratic Party controlling the House and the Senate and the White House could pass a law right now, that legalizes abortion from the point of view, not of privacy as the tenet of the case in Roe v. Wade, but on the basis that women have the right to control their own bodies. That would end the case. But again, the Democratic Party, which says that it supports women's rights, supports women's right to choose, isn't doing the thing it could do. So we have to build a mass movement in the streets. Time is really running short. So I want to go to our last two stories. I want to mention... That today is December 14th, 2021. On December 14th, 1974, there was a massive anti-fascist, anti-racist march under the banner, Say No to Racism, not in Mississippi, not in Georgia, not in Alabama, but in Boston, Massachusetts. And that's because during the months before December 14th, And after a court, a federal court ordered that the segregated schools in Boston be desegregated through a busing program, there were racist, fascist, armed mobilizations of racist white people attacking black school kids who were on buses, where the buses would come into the neighborhood and they'd be hit with bricks and rocks and children were taunted and beaten. and This fascist mobilization, which was rooted mainly in East and South Boston, this took place in a city that has a a very liberal reputation. I mean, the Kennedys are from Boston. Boston has 102 universities and colleges. In the time before the American Civil War, the abolition movement was very strong in Massachusetts. The, The whole issue of the Fugitive Slave Act and the Dred Scott case were... You know, very pertinent to people in Massachusetts because escaped enslaved people were being kidnapped and taken back to slavery. So here it was in liberal Boston that these fascist, racist mobilizations were taking place. And on December 14th, 1974, we and I was there, I had been there for a time organizing these anti fascist protests. We had 25,000 people marched down the middle of the downtown boston black and white marching together black white latino but mainly black and white at that time this was 1974 and it was a turning point it was a turning point where the fascist tide which seemed so overpowering you know we broke that momentum and we showed you could fight back it took a national mobilization because the forces within boston were too Weak because the racist, fascist mobilization was so strong. So we had people come from all over the country and march together. And by the way, William Owens, who was Massachusetts' only black state senator at that time and who was the official leader of the protest, he wanted and we wanted and demanded a permit to march down Boylston Street. And the police said no. And he said, we're marching on Boylston Street anyway. This is my district. And when we marched, the police attacked us. If you go back and look at the Boston Globe, it's horses, police horses roaring back with cops, with clubs, beating people on the front line. People were beaten, beaten badly and arrested at the front. So the march really went through enormous police attack. And yet we succeeded. And so I just wanted to mention it because it's like one of those moments in history, not in the South, in the North. Well, you know, Malcolm X always said that the South starts at the U.S.-Canadian border. But, you know, like one of those moments where a people's movement turned a tide against fascism and racism, and given the fact that it's back on the agenda big time, we thought it would be important to mention it.
0: It's our victory story for the week.
1: It's our victory story for the week. And of course, it's not a finished fight in Boston, certainly. Walter, Liberation News, you're the editor, Socialist Website, one of our favorite websites, perhaps our favorite website. What's on your agenda?
3: Well, speaking of victory stories, I mean, here's an article we ran titled Starbucks Workers Win Historic First Union. If we can do this here, you can do this too. For the first time in the United States, Starbucks workers have successfully organized a union. The the corporation went all out to try to bust their organizing drive, but they were unsuccessful. In Buffalo, New York. In Buffalo, New York. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So the workers were successful in the face of this disgusting union busting attempt and inspiring many, many other workers in the process. Check out this article. It has really great interviews with some of the key organizers in the struggle. Starbucks workers win historic first union. If we can do this here, you can do this too. Another article that I wanna recommend, it's titled MLB Execs Shut Down Baseball Industry, an attempt to divide players union. Here's another story from the labor movement, very different sector. Of labor, but labor nonetheless. How MLB players are staying up against abuses by the corporate bosses that run the league. And finally, I want to recommend an article titled Notorious Navy Fuel Facility Poisons Honolulu Drinking Water. This is yet another example of an outrageous environmental abuse negligence by the U.S. armed forces, this time taking place in Hawaii and threatening to poison the drinking water of a major US city. So you can check out these articles and a lot more on liberationnews.org. And you can sign up for a weekly newsletter by clicking the link at the top.
1: Yeah, and our friends Ann Wright and Mike Preisner are in Hawaii standing with those communities who are fighting back. Tomorrow we're gonna to have Richard Wolf, Marxist economist, in our regular weekly segment. On Thursday, we're gonna be joined by Vijay Prashad from Tricontinental Research prolific author. He's going to be our guest, the main guest for the second show in our multi-part series on what we're calling the rise and fall of the Soviet Union lessons for socialists. So we look forward to that. VJ's book, Red Star Over the Third World, talks about the impact of the Soviet Union on the anti-colonial struggles. Of course, we were joined last week by Carlos Martinez, who will be joining us too in future episodes so we have a lot more nicole all week and we have just to remind our audience the monthly seminar
0: yes we have our december patrons only seminar next wednesday wednesday december 22nd at 7 p.m eastern you can go to our patreon to register for that it's patreon.com slash the socialist program and you can subscribe and then register for the seminar and join us next wednesday
1: Yeah, we need the people who like or rely on this show to become subscribers. We really need you. We can't do it without you, but we can do it with you.
0: You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. Here we